Amen. Good morning, church. We are here to behold Him, and what a beautiful thing it is to do that together. It's always genuinely an encouragement to be with you. My name is Justin, uh, one of the pastors, elders here at Peninsula Grace. If I haven't met you yet, we hope you feel welcomed here today in the presence of the one that we are to behold. My wife and daughter and I just got back late last night from California. Uh, really good timing with this 5K. We've got to run off some of the In-N-Out and uh, Chick-fil-A that we uh, praise the Jesus with. And so we are glad to be back and, and with you all here in Alaska. Uh, if you are sitting in this room today um, or you're on YouTube, words that I never thought I would say in my life, um, and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you would say, I am one of his disciples. Um, he has left you, he has left us on a mission He said, go in the world and preach the gospel, to seek and save the lost, to make disciples of all nations. Now, if you are a disciple of Jesus, raise your hand if that is brand new information to you. Like you you had no idea that we were supposed to go in the world and make disciples. You had no idea we were supposed to, okay, that's good, that's good, we're just testing you this morning. Uh, But now raise your hand if you're like, yeah, I totally got that thing on lock. Like I'm making disciples every day. I sought and saved eight people yesterday. I thought it was like a pile of saved bodies in my house. That would be weird. (laughs) Don't do that. Uh, So we know that the mission, right? We know the mission, but we struggle to be on, stay on mission, right? Why is that? I think there are a lot of reasons, uh, but one of them I want to look at this morning. We are calling this sermon series um, Living as Strangers, Living as Strangers. And it's referencing Daniel and his people, Israel. They're living in exile in Babylon. So they're in a different context. Daniel's no longer living in Israel where everyone knew who Yahweh was. They knew the Torah. They they had the the law of God. They knew the stories. They were just ready, pre-programmed to know when you talked about God and his law, they knew what you meant, right? Now he's living in, in Babylon, very different context. The Babylonians don't know Daniel's God the way that they did back home. We're also calling this living as strangers because you and I are experiencing a similar thing Today, we are, we are, first of all, strangers here on earth because we are citizens of heaven, right? This is not our true home. But we're also referring to this because today we're living in what uh, sociologists are calling a post-Christian society or a post-Christian world. And just like Daniel, we're living in a world that is less and less familiar with the story of God and what he's called us into. Uh, a generation or two ago, the majority of people in our culture, they, they claim to believe in God and kind of a standard of, of fixed morals, right? You heard the expression, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang with girls who do, right? Like we knew the right way to, to live, uh, that, that many people, it was God and country. And kind of to be an American was the same thing as being a, a Christian, which comes with its own set of benefits and drawbacks. That's a different sermon for a different time. But as Bob Dylan once said, the times they are a-changing. We are seeing a shift from this Christian society to a post-Christian society where more and more there is a pushback against this idea of a God or a standard of morality, that it's become more and more you do you. You choose your own truth. Just don't hurt anybody else. And so because of that, Evangelism in a world where everybody was more familiar with God and the Bible and those things, it looked a lot different 30, 40, 50 years ago. You used to be able to throw up a tent and, and just have a bunch of people for a big old revival. And you could have a Christian puppet show and people were just falling into the aisles getting saved because they already knew the story. They just need to be convicted of their sins and then turn, right? Or you remember door-to-door evangelism, right? This creepo, right? Bing bong. 
do you know where you're going when you die, right? Can I come in and have a cup of coffee? That, that may have worked at one day. Today, you're going to get the cops called on you, right? Like, that's all that's going to happen. You show up at somebody's door today. Or if you handed somebody a gospel tract, right? You thought that was a $20 bill. You were wrong. When you open up the inside, don't be fooled. There is something you can have more valuable than money. Jesus paid for your sins, right? That bait and switch, right? I gave you fake money. Don't you love me? Um, the, the guy at the, the Y in Soldatna with the sandwich board, right? Repent, turn to Jesus, or burn. That feel-good message. That we, we and, and, and now some of these things are just bad ideas in general. But also, we live in a different world today. Now listen, we, we preach the same Jesus, the same gospel, the same hope, the same message. And yet, we are living in Babylon, different times. So what does it look like to be faithful today as followers of Jesus? We want to learn from the most famous story in the book of Daniel. We've made it to the lion's den, all right? So get out your cat spray. It's time to, time to do it. Uh, number one, we're going to look at Daniel's influence. Daniel's influence. Uh, the question is, how do we be faithful to influence the Babylon that we're living in today without being influenced by that Babylon? Uh, this is the last story in the book of Daniel. Uh, the first six chapters are narratives. And next week, buckle up, we're going to start to get into the crazy back half. This is like an afro, right? All organized up front, party in the back. We're about to get into some crazy dreams and visions, these weird animals that look like they belong in Lord of the Rings, and like the bad ones that the orcs were riding, right? It's going to get crazy. But what we see here at the end of Daniel chapter 6, we're actually fast-forwarding about 60 years from where we started in Daniel chapter 1. And a lot of things have changed. Uh, the, the empire of media has defeated Babylon. So now it's the media Persian empire that's starting to rule the world. And in that, King Darius of the Medes has conquered King Belshazzar. If you were here with us last week, that's exactly what uh, Daniel had predicted in Daniel chapter 5. And now Daniel is about 80 years old. So we're fast-forwarding in Daniel's life here. He's not that young, spelt Hercules Daniel anymore that was eating vegetables and drinking water. He's now old, wizened, Jewish kind of Yoda Daniel, which once again, Google Images comes through in the clutch. So there you have it. What I love about this chapter is that we see Grandpa Daniel just as faithful, just as influential as he was when he was in his 20s here in Babylon. So what does his influence in Babylon look like? And what might he be teaching us today? I see three things in Daniel's life. John Mark Homer helped point these things out in his Daniel message in chapter 6. Let's look at these together. The first one we see in Daniel's life is excellence. See excellence. Let's start in Daniel 6, verse 1. Darius, this is the king, the median, median king, decided to appoint 120 satraps, those are like governors, uh, over the kingdom, stationed throughout the realm. Now, over these 120, there's three dudes. Uh, over them, three administrators, including Daniel. So he's one of the three overseeing the 120 who's overseeing everybody, right? These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators, so even above the three that he's a part of, and the satraps, the 120, because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. So once again, just like with the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar, Daniel has distinguished himself here in Babylon. He's been given a position of authority that reflects his skill. And why? Did you notice what the text said? Because he had an extraordinary, an extraordinary uh, spirit. This, this word meant to surpass others, um, to be distinguished or excellent. So basically, what it's saying here is Daniel was awesome at his job. And this is what Ecclesiastes says is wisdom for all of us. Uh, Daniel, or excuse me, Ecclesiastes 9 says, whatever you do, whatever you do, how would we do it? We do it 
well. Whether it's your job, like your actual vocation, whether it's at home, as a spouse, as a parent, as a friend, as a neighbor, whatever it is we're called to do, we're doing it to do it well, to do it with passion, to do it with craft, to do it with excellence. Like if we do a lazy, slipshot, half-hearted job at it, is that, that is not unto the glory of God as Paul says we're supposed to do everything. Why? Because we're to reflect our God. He didn't throw the world together. Right? He didn't slap creation together. What does it say at the end of every day in Genesis 1? It is good. It is very good. If I slapped a sermon together in 10 minutes and just said, well, I don't know, Daniel 6, lions, God, we'll figure it out, right? Like I'm not doing well with what God has given me. We're to influence Babylon when we simply do excellent work. Like, you know, in your workplace, how much you can distinguish yourself if, if you just consistently show up on time? If you're just nice to the people around you, that you follow through on the work that you've been given by your boss, like there's kind of a low bar today in a lot of ways, but if we do excellent, we are going to be able to influence. Now, having said that, let's not use excellence as an excuse for selfish ambition. A lot of times we say, well, we're doing it excellently. I'm doing this. I'm supposed to do all things excellently. I used to do that as a basketball coach. Oh, well, I'm supposed to be excellent, but what I really want to do, I want to crush my opponents in the name of Jesus, Right? C-I-A-C-I-A. Well, so God says to be excellent, so you're going to die. Um, the excellence is for God's glory to lift high his name, not mine. The excellence is for the benefit of the people that we're serving. And ultimately, that's why we had to link the first one, his excellence, with the second one, his character. Let's look at Daniel's character. So again, he was distinguished with these above the three, above the 120, because he had this spirit. The administrators, verse 4, and satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. So Daniel's excellence gets him a promotion. It also makes his peer group jealous of him. They don't like him rising above them. And so what do they do? Verse 4, they could not find any charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was found in him. This is crazy. Basically, it says they launch a smear campaign against him, but they can't find a speck of dirt. Like you think about as we ramp up toward the political season here, and we know how political campaigns go, right? These smear tactics where I'm going to get myself voted in by digging up dirt with the other, well, at least I'm not them, right? We think about Ruffridge over there running. Um, I, I want to let you, just give you an insight. He cheated on a second grade math test. Uh, so <laughs> if you want to, I don't think Gillum, uh, anyway, let's just not, let's just not, church and state, right? My brother, yeah, that's, here we go. Uh, it, it makes me think, man, how long before someone dug through my closet that, that they would find a skeleton? I have certainly, I mean, I'm going to shoot it straight with you. I have said things, I have done things that would certainly work in a smear campaign against me in my past. I don't know about you. As a follower of Jesus, our character matters to influence Babylon. Jesus talked about this when he preached his sermon. Let your light shine before others. Why? So they could see your good works. They'll see your excellence in what you do, and they will see the character in the way you do it. Why? That will give glory to God. How often do we hear about people leaving the church because of the lack of character of the Christians who comprise that church? And honestly, a lot of times they're right. And, and the reality is, we can be right about things. You can be right about the sanctity of life or the sanctity of marriage, but if I'm a jerk about it, I'm still in the wrong. That's why God's main qualification for the church leaders, like you, you read Timothy and Titus, the qualifications are not, there's only one that's skill-based, able to teach. The rest of them are about character. 
What God is calling the leaders of the church is to be mature believers bearing fruit of kindness and gentleness and peace and love and joy. God cares about the kind of people we are, not just the skills that we have. But two caveats to this. Number one, to, to have this character does not mean perfection, right? Otherwise, we'd all be disqualified. To have character, it, 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 we're honest about our sin. We're honest about our need for a savior, our need for forgiveness. But what this is calling us to is to live above reproach. To, to live with character is to live honestly, not to live perfectly. Secondly, uh, to, to have character does not mean that we don't use our words. It doesn't mean that we make disciples by our character only. You've heard the expression, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. I guess it sounds right, and I understand what, maybe what they're trying to drive at, but I believe that is a deception that we need to be careful about. Because the reality is, we are called to proclaim the good news. That's the gospel. The gospel is news. And if Jill asks me to summarize the Peninsula Clarion for her today, I can't do it by mopping the floor for her or showing her my character, right? I have to tell her the news. And so when we, we, we know, what does Romans 10 say? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And Paul says, how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? So this does involve speaking the reality. I can't just share a cookie with somebody and hope that they understand that Jesus died for their sins. I have to tell them who Jesus is and what he's done for them. The point here, yes, our character must line up with our words, but we still need to use those words to be on mission. But what we see with Daniel is there cannot be a disconnect between the excellence of your skill and the character of the manner in which you do it, if we want to influence today's Babylon well for Jesus. But the third category we see in Daniel's life is his faithfulness. We see excellence, we see character, finally we see faithfulness. Look at verse 5. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. They know his weak point, right, so to speak. Verse 6, so the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, may King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. So for 30 days, nobody can pray to, petition any god, anybody other than the king, Darius. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the written edict. And you know the story. You know what's being set up here. They knew Daniel's character, right? They knew. They knew his life long enough. They had seen his life in action that he would be faithful to his God, and they tried to use it against him. What does Daniel do? Verse 10. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Now, why the detail? Right? The Hebrew authors don't give us random details for just to sp fill space, right? They're writing scrolls. It's a process. Now, the window here wasn't to show off, right? Dear Yahweh, as I fold my hands and close my eyes for everybody in the land to see, right? He's not showing off. But why the detail here? You notice it says, opened where? Toward Jerusalem. Why, why toward Jerusalem? Is this like a Mecca thing where you have to, God will only listen if your satellite's pointing in the right direction? Isn't God everywhere? Why, why toward Jerusalem? 
Daniel is faithfully carrying out the words that King Solomon had prayed at the temple dedication hundreds of years earlier. This is so cool. First Kings. Solomon is dedicating the temple to God. And he is, he knows what God has already said back in Deuteronomy. That my people, they're going to eventually disobey me. And because of that, they will eventually be exiled. And so this is what Solomon prays halfway through the prayer. When they, Israel, sin against you. And you have handed them over to their captors to deport them into the enemy country, which is where they're at right now, right? They're in Babylon, in the enemy country, just like God had said would happen. And when they come to their senses in the land where they were deported and and repent and petition, pray, you in their captors' land, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked. And when they pray, and here it is, when they pray to you in the direction of their land, back to where, that that you gave to their ancestors, the city you have chosen, that's Jerusalem, and the temple I have built for you in your name. Not because that's a magical place, it's uh, symbolically they're turning their hearts to Yahweh and where he dwells. May you hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and petition and uphold their cause. When they turn to Jerusalem and pray, would you listen and answer? May you forgive your people who sinned against you and all their rebellions against you, and may you grant them compassion before their captors so they may treat them compassionately. Do you see this? Daniel is being faithful here to do what Solomon had said, to pray in the direction of Jerusalem. Because what's going on here? They're in captivity as a people in Babylon. He says, if you pray for forgiveness, that God is going to hear you, and the promises, he'll bring you back home. But here's the key. Did you notice this other little detail at the end? That he gets down three times a day and prays just as he had done before. Do you see that? This is not new for Daniel. It wasn't that Daniel was in a pinch. He finds out he's going to die if he prays. And now he's like, I should start praying. Like how often do we get there where it's like, I've exhausted all my other options. Well, I guess all we have left to do is pray. That's number one. That's not the last thing, right? And what it's showing us here is this is who Daniel is. This is his normal routine. Daniel has been faithfully praying toward Jerusalem three times a day, every day, for over 60 years. Like, that's consistency. you got to get that guy a plaque or a trophy or something, right? Daniel's been actively waiting for six decades for God to forgive Israel and bring them home. So I've come to discover that holding our four-month-old is always an adventure. Always an adventure. Yeah, who, me? No, not me. <laughs> Cheap shot, I'm sorry. Morning, in, in the morning, you know, I'm holding Lucy, and uh, I'll have a, a hot cup of coffee in my hands, because that's the only way I'm going to be a kind parent. And sometimes, when she goes into her little spaz things, and she starts, you know, moving around, and, and if, if she is to bump into my coffee mug, what's going to come out? Hot coffee, right? Why? Because that's what's in my coffee mug. When it gets bumped, what comes out of it, see, right on cue, we got this. What, bump, what comes out of it is what was already in it. And so what's the parallel here? When we are bumped into, what spills out of us? Well, what was already in our hearts? So the question is, how, how does what's in the coffee mug of our heart get in there in the first place? So that when we're bumped into, that's what spills out. Well, this is what Aristotle, or Will Durant talking about Aristotle, he he summed up Aristotle this way. He said, we are what we repeatedly do. 
We are what we repeatedly do. He said, excellence then is not an act, but it's a habit. So to become excellent, to have character, this is not a one-time thing. This is not a singular act. It's actually a lifetime of repeated habits that form us. Or as Nietzsche says, and I often quote it, life is a long obedience in the same directory. These habits form a trajectory that are transforming who we are as people. And so you, you know how uh, Google autofill works, right? Like when you go to type something in. So in this case, it was, why do? And then and this is going to be based on what, what the people are typically typing in after the autofill. So apparently really people want to know why dogs eat grass, right? And halfway down, why do I sweat so much? I know we had a lot of stinky people out there. I don't know. So what, what's the point, though? It, Google autofills what people are going to typically put after uh, you've started to type those things in. And so when you are faced with a difficult situation, how does the Google autofill of your heart work? When I'm in a difficult situation, I, and what do you autofill with? When I'm in a difficult situation, I freak out. When I'm in a difficult situation, I get angry. When I'm in a difficult situation, I run and hide. Is it for me, is it when I'm in a difficult situation, I turn to my God in prayer? When Daniel's bumped into with the king's edict, what spills out? What's the autofill of his heart? We find when he is in a difficult situation, he turns to his God like he has been every day, three times for 60 years, actively waiting on God. Guys, here's the deal. We all have habits, and those habits are forming us. The question is, what are our habits, and how are they forming us? One of my habits I've developed over time is overeating. That's a default for me. An autofill over time has been when I'm bored, when I'm nervous, when I'm frustrated, I reach for the bag of Sour Patch Kids. I grab the Cheez-Its. That habit has been something that over time has formed me. When life is hard, I instinctively reach for the food. As followers of Jesus, what sort of habits does he tell us to be formed by? We are disciples of Jesus. So as disciples, his way is what we call the spiritual disciplines follow Jesus. So what are some habits that we need to instill in our lives to form us toward Christ-likeness? Well, one of those would be prayer, just like Daniel. Now, we're called to pray without ceasing. We're going to read that later on this morning. But we also need those fixed times, those anchors throughout the day. Like for me, that is every morning. I've got to start my day in prayer. Another place that I've found is in the car. The first thing, my habit is to, the first thing I'm in the car, I'm going to talk to the Lord. It's a habit that forms us so that we come to say, when I'm stressed, or when I go on to the next thing in my day, I pray. Right? These habits form. What about fasting? This is one of the powerful things about fasting. When we regularly fast, and I think this is one that we, most of us, if we're honest, we don't even know about this, let alone walk in this. And again, that's a different topic for a different day. But this habit forms us, teaches us to depend on God. When we feel lack, when we feel a hunger for something, am I turning to other things or am I turning to him? That's what this discipline of fasting helps form in us. What about memorizing scripture? What did, what did, what did uh, David say? Your word I've hidden in my heart. Why? So that I won't sin against you. So that when I get bumped into, what spills out won't be venom toward the person that bumped into me, but the word of God, his heart. What about community? We need regular gathering together. That's why we're doing what we're doing right now this morning. That's why we come together in small groups and, and discipleship triangles. We need to encourage each other, reorient our hearts toward Jesus and his mission so that our autofill in our life is, man, I am on mission making disciples of all nations. 
See, our influence in Babylon is going to be formed over time. These faithful daily habits that form our excellence and character so that we can be salt and light. But, as we'll see next with Daniel, when we are faithful, when we do listen, it's going to get us into some trouble. And one of the ways that God is going to form us is through suffering. We've seen Daniel's influence, but let's look at Daniel's rescue. Daniel's rescue. So he gets tattled on. Hey, Daniel's still praying. Those guys that were jealous. And so the king is super bummed because he loves Daniel, but they say, it's too late. You already made that rule, and Daniel violated it, so you've got to keep your word. Verse 16, the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. A stone was brought and, and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it, a sealed tomb, right? You can note that. And with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Can't reverse this thing. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and he could not sleep. He has no diversions, so he's not binging Netflix tonight, right? He is distracted. He, is, he can't sleep. I think, ironically, I'm wondering if Daniel slept better in the lion's den than the king did in the comforts of his palace. What happens? Verse 19, at the first light of the dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he, searched, when he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lion's den? A dramatic pause, but you've heard the story, so you know that Daniel spoke with the king. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him. And also before you, your majesty, I have not done harm. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed, for he trusted his, in his God. Then the king gave the command, and those who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den. This gets gruesome. They, their children, and their wives. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. So there's your nice children's story ending, right? Isn't that how you tuck your kids at night in, tell them the little story, and bones and all. Good night, kids. Trust in God. (laughs) The cat comes in. Ah! What? Two things about God that we see revealed in this back half of Daniel 6. First of all, we see God as judge. In the ancient world, if you survived your death sentence like this lion's den, it meant that your God was obviously with you. It meant that you were innocent. The gods had smiled upon you. Like had you, had you been guilty, you would have become meow mix. But, but because, you, the God, because the gods were against you, clearly. But if you survived like Daniel did, well, obviously the gods were for you. How would you like that to be our justice system today? right? Is he guilty? Well, I don't know. Let's drive to the zoo and see what happens, right? I'm glad we've progressed past that. Uh, but on the flip side, this meant that Daniel's accusers had, had falsely accused him. And in, in the ancient world, you would receive the same punishment that you had afflicted on the falsely accused. Remember the story of Esther, when, when Haman accuses Mordecai. And what ends up happening? Haman is hung by the, in the same gallows that he had set up for for Mordecai. We see the same thing here. These men are thrown into the lion's den that had been prepared for Daniel. But now why this gruesome detail that before they even reach the bottom, the, the, the lion gobbles them up? Well, I think we see here, we want, we want, the author wants to show us just how hungry those lions are. I think we're being showed that Daniel was spared that night, not because the lion had indigestion, not because he was full and didn't want to eat Daniel, 
but because his God had rescued him. And Daniel says why he believes he is rescued. Verse 22, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they haven't harmed me. Why? For, there's your reason, for I was found innocent before him. And also before you, your majesty, I have not done harm. Daniel says, God judged me and found me innocent. You judged me and found me guilty of something. But my God ultimately says that I am innocent. In fact, interestingly, the, word, the name Daniel means God is my judge. God is judge. And here we see Daniel being judged innocent. Daniel 6 is a reminder that God alone has the final say in our guilt and in our innocence. We are not the judge of anybody else's heart. They're not the judge of ours. At the end of our Bible, we get this picture painted of all of us standing before the one true God. He's the one that decides. Revelation 20 says it this way, I saw the dead, both great and small, that's a way to say everybody, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. But now you might say, well, wait a second. <laughs> I, I, I can't say like Daniel, I've been found innocent. I, I can't say like Daniel, I've found no harm. This is not actually super helpful or encouraging for me. Well, God is pictured as the ultimate judge here in Daniel 6. He's also, though, painted as a savior. Verse 23, when Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed. Why? For he trusted in his God. He trusted his God to rescue him. But again, you can say, well, that's awesome for him. But again, I know my own heart. Like, I don't know about you, but before my head hits the pillow tonight, I will fail to trust and obey God like 40 times. So how do we know? Once again, we have to remember these stories are not, this is not a how-to guide for how to face the lion's dens of your life. This is not simply just be Daniel and God. We, we know plenty of stories that don't line up like Daniel's. Like all of Scripture, this should point us to Jesus. That Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Daniel chapter 6. That Daniel is a shadow of Christ. He's a sign pointing to the true and better Daniel. Because like Daniel, Jesus was falsely accused by his enemies as well. And he was handed over to die in spite of Pilate's weak attempts to save him, like Darius's weak attempts to save Daniel. But unlike Daniel, who was spared from that lion's jaw, Jesus was handed over to death, and he was swallowed who swallowed by that lion, and no one was there to comfort him. No one was there to stand with him. But, but, on the third day, our better Daniel exploded from the lion's pit, for he, too, was innocent. That he had been thrown in the den, not because of anything that he had done, but because he was suffering our fate, the true judge had declared him innocent, but what's more, it, it, it's not just that Jesus was declared innocent. Jesus emerged from the pit like super Jesus with me and his arms, like the damsel in distress, right? Clinging to his salvation. And anyone who believes that Jesus lives and Jesus saves receives the same verdict before the judge that Jesus does. That Jesus is declared righteous, and in him I am declared righteous too. And my name in that book of life is written in the blood of Jesus forever and ever. Amen? Peter talks about a roaring lion as well. He says, 
Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. You think about that picture. Like, imagine, you know, we're out camping this summer, and the the campground host tells you, like, I mean, I hope you guys have a great time here this weekend. Uh, Just a heads up, there's a lion in the camp, and they're trying to devour people. So just kind of, you know, make sure that that really thin tent is zipped up tight, right? Like, all the Alaskan men are like, I got a gun, I'll be fine, right? And it's like... Awesome. Uh, Satan, so here's the deal. Satan comes at us not with sharp teeth, but a sharp tongue. In Revelation chapter 12, it paints him as the accuser. It says, because the accuser of brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. This is Satan's tactic. He accuses us of sin. Satan tempts us to despair, we sing, and tells us of the guilt within. Now, outside of Christ, like he's spot on, right? I am a sinner. But the lie, the lie of the accuser is you've done what you've done, you are what you are, and you're condemned because of it, and there's no way out of it. But as Daniel said to Darius, my God, he shut the lion's mouth. Like Revelation goes on to say that that accuser's been thrown down. He's been conquered. Why? Why? The salvation and the power and the king of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. We've been rescued from the jaws of the lion. We've been rescued from the power of his accusations because there's a new king on the throne. And in him there is no condemnation now and forever. Amen? Jesus snapped the mouth of the accuser shut. Why? Not because I'm not a sinner. Because Jesus took my place. I'm forgiven in Christ. So when you look at that lion standing over you, drooling his lion drool, snarling his lion teeth, you say, you a lion, lion, right? (laughs) When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, the song says, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sins. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Notice that the effect this has, not just on the king, but on the entire world. Story wraps up. Then King Darius wrote to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the earth. The gospel is going out, isn't it? May your prosperity abound. Peace on earth. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Why? This is what Darius has learned. For he is a living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will be dis- never be destroyed, and his dominion has no end. We'll talk about that a lot more in the next weeks. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth, for he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. I love this. The influence of this one man, Daniel, was ultimately not based on how awesome he was. It wasn't based on Daniel's excellence, Daniel's character, Daniel's faithfulness. He says, what I've learned is there's a God who can rescue Daniel. Daniel's influence was to announce to the world the excellence of his God, the character of his God, the faithfulness of his God. And what good news, what great news for us today. How do we influence in Babylon? It's not ultimately by going around the world and showing how awesome we are. 
right? The great news is that God is not counting on you alone. He's not counting on my excellence, my character, my faithfulness. If he was, this mission would be sunk before it ever started. He's, my job is to announce to the world that God has judged my not awesome sins in Jesus and now declares this guilty one free and righteous in his sight as his child now and forever. But here's the part two of that. Now, with Christ in me, I now have the fuel, I have the power of the Spirit to go out and live an excellent life marked by character and faithfulness. See, the gospel both forms and fuels who we are now. The reason I can work with excellence, can work passionately, is I I no longer have to worry about earning God's favor. I have it in Christ, and now I'm free to go out and, and work excellently because I have his favor, not to earn it. And he's promised that he will form Christ in me. We're going to start to look like Jesus, not because of behavior modification. It's not just outward habit forming. It's actually Jesus being formed inside of us, and that's going to evidence itself in the habits that we form. And we can know. But even, guys, even when we are faithless, because we are, again, before our head hits the pillow tonight, going to fail over and over to trust our God. But Timothy says, even when we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot and will not deny himself. He will never abandon his children. And like Daniel, we have this hope, we have this promise. So the story ends. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel from what we know, spent his entire life in Babylon, in exile. He was faithful, praying to his God three times a day and never got home. Not this version of the world, but he knew. He knew the hope that was coming on the other side of death. He knew to whom he belonged, and he knew where he belonged. Brothers and sisters, we can thrive in this world. We can influence this world, be on mission to make disciples of all nations, to seek and save the lost. And we remember where our true home lies and to whom we belong, the ancient of days. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father God, and we come before you today. We know all too well the experience of Daniel to be shut up in the lion's den, the lying tongue of the accuser. Father, I just want to pray for those in this room today that have been hearing the whispers of the lying lion very loudly that have been chained by the condemnation they feel, that they are not worthy to be your child, that they have outsinned the grace of God. Father, your word says that we are indeed sinners, but we are not sinners without hope, that the lion of Judah, he has rescued us from the grave, from sin and death, and they would stand on the sure-footed rock of their salvation and know that they are righteous in Christ forever, perfectly accepted as your child. And Father, I'm in our room today. I know my own heart that we, we just get so distracted that we're becoming a lot more like Babylon than we are in influencing Babylon. So Father, by your Spirit, would you form are the way that we work, that we would do it excellently, the character that we manifest, the fruit of the Spirit that we manifest in the way that we go about that work, and that we, that by your faithfulness, we would be able to trust you, 
even when we let go, we know, as we sang earlier, the grip is the grip of your grace on us. Not our ability to hold on to you, but your ability to hold on to us, that you will finish what you've started in us. Those who are in Christ, nothing can separate us. Father, we worship the Ancient of Days, the Lion of Judah. May we now turn our eyes off ourselves, and upward we look and see him there who made an end to all our sin. It's in the victorious name of Jesus that all God's people said.